Hey, this is Mark Thompson. I'm the voice of Yoda and many of the Star Wars audiobooks, and you are listening to Yudini. Welcome to the Living Force Podcast. I am Queen Amidala. <laughs> this is my decoy, my protection, my loyal bodyguard. A Utini production. You Jedi are far too reckless. Episode 41, Queen Shadow Roundtable, Take 3, Part 2. We are brave, Your Highness. On this episode, watching the rise of Skywalker in the theater again. Clean this droid up as best you can. Delays in upcoming EU projects. Will not condone a course of action that will lead us to war. And the Utini crew continues their discussion of Queen Shadow by E.K. Johnston. Thank you, Ambassador. From my places with my people. And now, here are your hosts, Eric Eilerson and Dr. Charles Hankel. I know you're recording in a different location than usual. I am. Yeah, Nicole is home, but she is not feeling so well, so I let her have the have the room. Aww. She's resting, and I'm out in the main area. Figured I'd give this a whirl. So Coda might make an Absolutely. appearance. <laughs> Oh, please, man, it's a whole new day. Yeah. It's a whole new universe, my friend. Uh, because we are back for The Living Force, episode 41. Welcome, everyone, uh, to part two of our Queen Shadow Roundtable series. I am one of your hosts, Eric Eilerson, and with me is one of the doctors, Dr. Charles Hankel. How you doing, buddy? Hey, man, I'm doing fine. Right on cue, we've got an ambulance. You know, you... Oh... It's so good. It never ends. There it goes. It never ends. It doesn't. Uh, so we, because we had so much fun with all three of us last week, we decided to say, screw that. Let's go back <laughs> to only having two. Um, if you listen to our bounty hunt episode uh, that either is out or will be coming out soon, uh, Corey and I are on that episode, and we talk a little bit about the craziness that has been your guys' schedules. Uh, but you had a day off today, fully. I did, so I am rested and recharged and ready to hop back into Queen's Shadow. Ugh, couldn't want you any other way. Uh, so a couple quick updates for us, because we're going to spend most of this episode all about the Queen's Shadow to get you guys all caught up. Um, I wanted to let you guys know, last weekend I saw The Rise of Skywalker for the fifth time. And, my, and I think my final time, that was it. Um, and if you've listened to our episode where we reviewed the film a lot of my main points still stick Mm -hmm. and i think at the end of my fifth film i walked out being like yeah okay moving on you know it's weird it already kind of feels like it's in the past doesn't it it does there was so much star wars in such a short time period that was coming out and now i feel like we're in that weird like i don't know the immediate aftermath of all of that and it's just like oddly quiet as long as you stay off of twitter that is um and yeah i mean it's just letting all of that kind of soak in it's so hard to have like firm opinions on these things you know you really have to let them kind of rest and you gotta let your let yourself marinate in that star wars goodness and i think you know i i probably won't get around to seeing rise of skywalker in theaters again but i'm still forming opinions on it and i probably will be for years Absolutely. And speaking of Twitter, there was a little hubbub this week because some people posted screenshots that their audible pre-orders for the Rise of Skywalker novelization had been delayed indefinitely. And there was panic in the streets, Charles. People were screaming. People were freaking out. And uh, the Star Wars book Twitter, Del Rey, 
came in and said, uh, nope, it's not delayed. Don't know what that problem is. We'll check it out. Is it, so some, amazingly, we're fine. a weird subset of Twitter, man, that I think exists to just try to make people panic that projects that they're excited about are, are not going according to plan. Like we saw this with the Obi-Wan series. We saw this now with the yep. novelization for Tross. It's just... It's just nonsense, man. Listen, we've got great stories coming down the line. They may get moved a week or whatever, one way or the other. And but you know what? We're gonna get them, and they're gonna be fantastic. So everyone, just hang on to your hats. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna get here. Exactly, exactly. And speaking of one of those things that did get delayed, uh, Queen's Peril, the prequel to this book we're talking about, Queen's Shadow, did get delayed a while back, um, by one month till June to make way for. Thrawn, yeah, which is good it was like chaos. the same it was it a day apart or the same, same day. day it was the yeah. same day. i mean that was that was bound yeah. to get moved it was um luckily however those advanced reader copies already went out five like four and a half months early uh, i finished mine this past weekend uh, i'm so jealous and naturally i cannot say anything about it yeah but i saw you uh, tweeting except for tweeting with ek johnson i did i did uh we chatted a bit I, you know, got to basically tell her how anguished I am that I have to hold these secrets for four and a half months. Oh, um, heavy is she, the head that you know, wears the crown, Eric. <laughs> you know it, baby. And she was like, yeah, that's that's how it happens. And I, you know, made a, a coded statement about one of the moments that really got to me. And she's like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So all I can say is you really want to go to utini.com and pre-order that book if you haven't already. Because, um... Yeah, you just should pre-order it. That's all I got. That's all I can do. And I'm really going to try to make sure my head stays separate in this roundtable from information that I know from Queen's Shadow and information I know from Queen's Peril. So <laughs> we'll make sure that is solid. Uh, but if you are new uh, to this show, and because you like some Queen's Shadow, you've been searching around for some Padme podcasts, welcome. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and tune in every single week where us at Utini, we'll talk about the Star Wars Expanded Universe. And if you haven't already, my friends, my followers, my loved ones, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people find us. Just a couple words saying how much you love the show. And head over to Utini.com where we do have reviews, articles, and book profiles on every story in the Star Wars galaxy. Now, speaking of those reviews, Charles, the reviews on the site just keep coming for books. But we're not going to read any this week. We have too much Queen Shadow to get to. Uh, so listeners, I hope you forgive us, but I mean, those notifications have been going off this week. I mean, yeah. we got some yeah, from I mean, Catalyst, we got some, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, I'm enjoying reading them too, because honestly, uh, as much as we might influence some of our listeners in, in their opinions or their thoughts on certain projects, there are things getting reviewed that I haven't gotten around to yet. And so in reverse, you know, our listeners are getting me excited about certain stories that I'm moving on up my list. Absolutely. And if you want to review your books and get them read on this show, all you got to do is look up that book on utini.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and add your star rating one out of five in your user review. You can also email us at livingforcepod at utini.com, tweet at us at livingforcepod, or join the Discord community that is bopping every day by going mm-hmm. to utini.com slash discord. A couple other updates for Utini before we jump into Padme. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there should be a new episode of Bounty Hunt coming up very soon 
Corey and I recorded an episode all about the Clone Wars seasons one through three to get us ready for season seven coming out in less than a month. There is a new Legends Look Back episode up where they talk about the books Order 66 and 501st finishing up the Republic Commando saga. Uh, our own Meg Dowell was on that episode. Massive love to Meg. And they did a great freaking job with that series. If you want some more Mando lore in your life and some clones, you got to get on that. And the next book for that Patreon-exclusive series is going to be Legends Look Back. Or no, for Legends Look Back, is Splinter <laughs> of the Mind's Eye. I can't read my own outline. Uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, that's right, the first extended universe novel. And you can order it right now in time for that show on its book profile at utini.com. Final thing that went up on Patreon probably next week, or that will go up, uh, Corey and I recorded the council meeting, the monthly Q&A that goes up to our inquisitorious members and above. We had a good old time just rattling off some questions all about Star Wars, the expanded lore, Char uh, Corey's hometown. It was a great time. So definitely look for that on your Patreon feed. And if you want all of that exclusive content, join us on Patreon. For $2 a month, you're a Jedi initiate. You get this show one day early. For 5 bucks a month, you're Guardian of the Wills. You get Legends Look Back, and you get Bounty Hunt, and it goes on and on and on. Whew. All right. Busy as always, man. But I but it's been a good week, I think, despite all the scheduling you guys have had to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sad I've missed a couple of those shows, but, I mean, I'm excited to listen to them, too, is just get myself ready for this Clone Wars and all of that. It's going to be very awesome. But before all that happens, my friends, with Clone Wars, we are going to dive right back in to E.K. Johnston's 2019 hit, Queen's Shadow. If you listened to last week's episode, as I hope you did before this one, we talked about uh, the characters, specifically the handmaidens. We each gave our own score for the book at the start. And today, uh, Charles has written up a bunch of questions that we're going to go over. And I'm excited to listen to them. I'm excited to answer them. So, Charles... Let's talk more about Queen Shadow. All right, man. So many questions, so little time, but we're going to do the best that we can. So as you we know, last week we talked about all the characters. We ended talking a whole lot about Padme, and now we're going to kind of do these overarching questions that have a lot to do with some plot points. And I want to start off with the place that makes the most sense to start off, and that's the very beginning. So I, I want to talk about how E.K. Johnson opened up this book and closed this book with some parallel scenes um basically what she did was open the book and it, it it seemed very much like she was describing padme's funeral but in fact she was just floating on a pool um and then used the exact same wording at the end of the book to actually talk about padme's funeral what were your thoughts on that i thought that was incredibly creative i really loved that i mean any fan that has watched the prequel movies a, a good amount of times is going to know exactly the imagery that she was going for at the yeah. top. I thought starting the book off with that bait and switch was so fun and really puts us off off base and shows that, one, E.K. Johnston has done her research, which is evident throughout this book, oh, but no you know kidding. that she's she's got the imagery down perfectly. And it says, all right, we're going to go in some weird places. I'm not sure where exactly how it's going to work. And by the end of the book, when she brings it back, it's kind of a beautiful bookend, um, literally, to – kind of sandwich this whole story together with one of the most iconic moments of Padme's journey. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, listening to the audiobook uh, reading of the actual ending of this book, Padme's funeral, was pulling at my heartstrings, man. It, I, I mean, it yeah. really, it struck me the way that, that Johnson was able to 
describe that scene and the the flowers and Padme's hair and all of these things. I mean, it it really got me. It did. Um, yeah. So yeah, props props to her. Um, and I got to tell you too, Eric, I've been drinking out of that mug that you got me for Mutini's uh, yeah. yeah Secret Santa. And I was looking through it's so for anyone that wasn't in on the Christmas party, it is a Padme mug and it has all of Padme's different outfits on it. And I was looking at them the other day and the last one is Padme's funeral outfit. And it, oh, that's oh, perfect. it really got me. It really got me, man. It, Cause it's such an iconic moment. Um, in, in a really great movie, I mean, I think pretty unanimously thought of as the best prequel movie, at least some people's favorite movie out of all of them. And a movie that ends in such darkness to end with a sad moment that is still filled with so much beauty and so much like, you know, it's it's really aesthetically pleasing while still being very somber. Mm-hmm. And it kind of represents the end of an age. Like Padme's death is the, is the final kind of stroke in the beginning of the Empire. And that image was burned in all of our brains um so instantly in the theater and has been on rewatch and rewatch and rewatch and it it's not any easier easier listening to Catherine Tabor describe it no no it certainly isn't um but let's let's try to move on from that sadness i want to talk hmm. about a few things now on this show we uh we always are are open and honest about the things that we love and the things that we didn't like as much. And there are a couple of things that I want to bring up towards the beginning of this episode, some things that maybe I didn't like quite as much. And I want to see how they struck you. And then I basically want to run through a million things that I loved about this book. Let's do it. So a couple of sticking points for me, I just want to break these down. Um, Number one, you know, we talked about all the deleted scenes from, from the prequels last week and how mm-hmm. so much of that was pulled into this book. And so I want to ask you, did it bother you at all that it seems like Johnston's story mostly came from material that was already out there? Or were you hoping to have more original material? Did you even realize while you were reading it that pretty much all of this was already come up with? I think it's more the latter of what you said. I, I didn't realize as I was going through that it that not a lot of it was from her mind, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it's kind of like seeing a great editor at work. Like they're taking all these disparate things and making a cohesive story together. And when I was reading it, I was like, Oh, this all flows very well. It all flows very well. And then when, when I discovered all the deleted scenes and stuff that had been mentioned, and all the references that were in clone wars and stuff, instead of feeling, I guess, slighted as I guess you could by like, Oh, I thought this was all going to be original. I felt, kind of like oh my gosh how cool that she got to do all this and i was amazed at how well it all worked together Mm -hmm. you know um so i i i liked it because it felt kind of like a lot of the loose bricks being put together into a solid construction yeah from my point of view yeah I, i think it's cool actually because the deleted scenes in and of themselves like those aren't canon right because like they weren't in the film yeah. but she's taking a lot yeah, of material which is so which is so testy about deleted scenes yeah. right like there's you know, in most films, it's just kind of cool stuff, but everyone's talking about what deleted scenes will be on The Rise of Skywalker. That gets tough, because on Star Wars, it's like, wait, then are those technically canon? Because a lot of times they were cut for non-story reasons, right. you know, because of timing or because of lighting or whatever. But in Star Wars, it has such an effect because it affects the whole story. So her decision to say, nope, this is legit canon now, I thought was pretty bold. It was, it was, and I and I think she salvaged a lot of Padme's story that, like I mentioned last week, 
was kind of left on the on the editing room floor. So you know that's I, I think yeah. that's cool. And to be fair, E.K. Johnston was was somewhat handcuffed with this book because we do know the ultimate fate of almost every character from Padme to Clovis to Bonteri to Organa. Like we know what happens. So yep. with that, it's the prequel curse of like you know how do you keep stakes high exactly. By like, you know, and I think that's the brilliant thing about her use of Sabe is like, okay, we saw this character. We technically didn't see what happens to her at the end. So that's open-ended. But at the same time, she's important enough that she's interesting to read. Right. And I think that could be very hard. Well, so do you feel then like these prequel era books are, I don't want to say doomed to fail. That's what's coming to mind right now, but that's like so strong. Do do you feel like it's an issue though that we know the fate of these characters or are you having fun seeing how much can be expanded on without contradicting what we know? Oh, it's definitely the latter on that. I think that the risk that they take is that bad writers won't be able to do it. You know, know, I think that's, I think it's it's harder probably, honestly, to keep a story that has high stakes when you know characters are going to survive. But then I think you need to have other stakes that don't just involve death. Sure. You know, I think that death doesn't have to be the only end for any character. So there's there's the creative issue, right? Like with Master and Apprentice, we knew Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan were going to survive that story. But Claudia Gray infused that story with so many stakes because of the planet, because of the new characters. And like... It's, it's probably harder to impose those stakes on pre-existing characters, but I think that challenge is part of what makes it so rewarding when it does work very well. Sure. And as Star Wars fans, we are reading for expansion, literally the expanded universe, right? That's that's kind of our goal. So we're excited to put another piece in the puzzle. We, don't, we know the puzzle will never quite be finished. Well, I sure hope not, even with the end of the Skywalker right, saga, sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So now my last my last big sticking point that I, I just got to have this conversation up front with you. And I think you probably know what it is. But I want to talk go. about one of the pivotal scenes in this book. One of the pivotal plot points in this book that just didn't make sense to me. And that is yep. why did Mon Mothma, the mastermind of the rebellion, throw a fake party to have a conversation with the exact same people she already speaks privately with in the Senate building? Why couldn't they just meet like that again? Why? Like, I know it created a dramatic situation. It was fun to read about. Padme got to sneak around and wear a disguise, but what? So I've now read this book fully twice, talked about it a lot, and I've thought about this because we talked about this a year we ago, did. and I didn't quite figure it out. And I think I've come on to a point now where I think my Mothma at this point still has to play the part a little bit. You know, at this point in the Republic, still at this time, Bill Organa and Mon Mothma are, like, kind of troublemakers a little bit, but they're still senators. They're still very respected. Mm-hmm. They're still, like, dutiful dutiful citizens or whatever, right? So I think at that point, she's still got to have these public events to kind of keep her power in the Senate and keep people going. And I think this was also a little bit of a test to see if Padme could handle herself. They wanted to see how that was going to work. And at the end of the day, I think it's it's keeping the balancing act. Because if it's all clandestine meetings, then you're going to kind of fall into the trap of, okay, they're always sneaking off. They're always sneaking off. There's always the secret alliances. But if you're having these large parties, and you're having these big gatherings, it's like, no, I am 
you know, I'm not the Senate, but I am still a big, powerful voice in the Senate. So I think she's still playing the part. She's still playing the game, which I think people like Mon Mothma and Bill Organa and Padme eventually all do really well. And we don't really see elsewhere in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also a reason why it kind of takes us back a bit because it's it is so unknown. You know, we don't get to see this kind of political grandstanding because for the most part in the EU – Whenever you get into politics, it's the evil empire, or it's like the crumbling senate, or the the burgeoning new rebellion. Sure, sure. So that's do, where I got. Where do you with think, it, I think? Then do you think that people were wrong? I can't remember exactly who brings everything up, but but basically, Padme comes to the conclusion that she's been invited as Queen Amidala to serve as a distraction, so that they can go have their conversation. But that really wasn't necessary, oh, totally. was it? I, I uh. Whether it was necessary or not, I'm not sure. But I think that she – that's absolutely was the plan. Um, but why? Because, why do I they mean, need all the, that? That's what I don't understand. Because if she's if she's hosting the party, right? Then don't, then don't have so this conversation cameras. while hosting a party. And Bail Organa is already wearing yeah. something on his belt that keeps the cameras from flying anywhere near them. Prob- problem solved. I don't know. Maybe, but if all the cameras are off of you the entire night, then people get suspicious. Okay, but but not when they're off long enough to talk to Padme. They already did. He he had a private conversation yeah. with Padme at the party, which they could have yeah, done after she was anyways. already after she was already providing distraction after like the big event of her ar- arriving had happened. Sure, that's fair. But this also could have just happened in the Senate building when they already meet with her. That's my that's, that's my sticking point. You know what that is? It's boring. It is. No, I agree. Like, the actual scene in and of itself was fun. It was definitely yeah. fun. I just struggled a little bit with understanding yeah. why it didn't feel I mean, And forced. I think it's also, like, why in every book that's, like, you know, like a scoundrels type book, do they need to go to the auction where the data is being, like, you know, released? Why don't they just break into the place in the middle of the night when everyone's asleep and steal the stuff? You know, it's it's like that classic heist thing because the auction is way more fun and it's way more exciting <laughs> to have to go through all these things for story. You know, why why doesn't uh, Anakin just force push Obi Wan off the thing on Mustafar into the lava? <laughs> True. Okay. All right. You know. All right. I'll... So I so I think that y- yes and yes. I think <laughs> I think this is the this is the case of of both si- both uh, factions being like this is why it has to happen. But that's also why they probably could have just like written notes to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I like your explanation. And I want to move on. I want to move on from that. I want to talk about all the things that I really love about this book because it's a lot and it's a lot longer of a list this time having read the book than the first time that I read the book. Which is also so interesting because I know a lot of us on the team don't actively reread a lot of no. books because there's so much content, which is great. Um, but, like, taking the time to reread something you've already read means you're not going back to read an older book or you're maybe not catching up to new stuff, which is which is hard, especially for those of us that want to keep current. So I think this reread was actually really important to me as well, Charles, because yeah. I, I found stuff that I loved this time as well even more. And I was like, oh, damn, should I be rereading a lot more books that I didn't like as well? Yeah, it made me wonder. It really did that maybe I should go back and revisit a few, but... You know, thanks to the to the patrons that made this happen, that kind of had us put this book back on our radar, yeah, and, thank you and now guys. here we are. So, um, all right. So, E.K. Johnson did something really interesting with this book, 
And that is she took what a lot of people consider to be weaknesses of the prequels and actually highlighted them in this book. Yeah. Like, for instance, the the kind of stiff Victorian dialogue was very prominent or the monotone voice that Amidala uses in the mo- in the movies apparently was quite intentional. Like, that was a voice that she specifically used as Amidala. Were you hoping to see something different or were you really pleased to see that Johnston kind of stayed the course? I really, I really dug it honestly. Cause I think that with the prequels, it, it's such an interesting time for prequels. We've talked about this on a few episodes cause we're at a time where a lot of us that grew up as kids with the prequels are now in our twenties and thirties and stuff and are like, cool. We're ready for more mature content involving this time period because we still have such good memories from yeah. it. And because of that, I don't want anyone to apologize for story because then you're you're kind of shitting on your own universe, right? Which is, which is weird. It's not nice. So instead, it's like, hey, you know what's going to be cool? This thing you thought was an accident? Yeah, we'll flip it on its head. We'll make it intentional, which is one of the fun things about Star Wars. You know, that's yeah. one of the cool things you can do. So I loved the idea that this voice was something that all the handmaidens were like, well, Amidala's got this voice and it's going to be proper and it's gonna be something that padme can do and it's gonna be something that sabe can do and it's like all right that's why we use it because it's a tool to distract and to like neutralize and stuff like that i I really liked that choice and like taking all the outfits and being like yeah it was really cool to have them in the in the film but then here's all the cool stuff they can do with them and here's the point behind it all and yeah you know it it's uh, the more i think about this book the more i think like did it just use the word expanded universe better than most others. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I think this book particularly excelled in, in incorporating things that we know to be true or that we consider to be true or fact and looking at them with a brand new lens and not contradicting anything, but giving us a better understanding. And I think that's really special actually. Um, now, I want to bring you to the, to the first quote that I have for the night. It was early on. It was on page eight, and All it right. reads... Getting my hymnal. There you go. It reads as follows. No matter how many times they were proven able, people who looked at them were blinded by their youth and by their clothing and dismissed them yet again. That was exactly how they preferred it. I mean... That's the coolest thing about this book and like honestly like this burgeoning series to me yeah. is it uh, it is such an epic like screw you to anyone that looks down on people because they're young or down on young women or people because they like to dress up like it's all the stereotypical things that a lot of you know star wars fans we don't quite care for uh will like make fun of or talk down about and it's say no this is the power and because you're ignoring it you're gonna get screwed yeah and that's like the brilliance of it. And to start that off, like you said, on page eight is like, damn. It really sets the All tone. Right. And and the entire yeah. book after that just doubles down and doubles down and doubles down on it. Um, yeah. And so I think E.K. Johnson really just called her shot early on and then followed it up. And, and <laughs> Yeah, here's my book. Uh, and like they're going to take you down because they're a great team. Yeah, I mean. And I don't think it. That could have been her pitch. Ahead. That literally, those two sentences could have been her pitch for this book. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's a fascinating idea because 
she somehow balances writing them as as honest, you know, teenage girls. They're all like well, 17, 18 at this point in this book. Um so it's honestly written. They're not written as 30 somethings. Mm-hmm. Like which could be, you know, they're not like glee the glee teenagers that are all 28 playing high schoolers. <laughs> but but also at the same time, they are written with such power and she never deviates from that. She lets them be human but also powerful and it's like you read it and you think, "Oh, wait, do I just assume that younger women can't be powerful? And that is that why I'm confused?" And then it's like, "Wait, I should re-examine that about myself cuz this seems pretty natural." <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it kind of has that bigger idea to it. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think this book challenges some real-world views that people probably have. And in another vein, it also challenges some views that I think we as Star Wars fans may have had of things that happen in the prequel films themselves. And one thing in particular that I'm curious about is if this book changed at all how you viewed Padme's actions in The Phantom Menace. Because I thought it was incredibly interesting to see that there were other senators who felt like Padme basically circumvented the Senate called for a, a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum, and then just ran back to Naboo, and they were all just left in the wake of this chaos. And, you know, not to mention that all of that led up to the senator from her own planet being named the new chancellor. Like, I never thought about it in that way. But I can't remember if it was Bonteri or Mon Mothma. One of them, you know, brought that point up in this book, and, like, I was I was floored. Absolutely. I, I have honestly wanted to, like... I've had the urge to watch The Phantom Menace ever since finishing this book, yeah. which tells you a lot about the book itself because The Phantom Menace isn't one of my favorites, but it does paint it all in a new light. It makes you think, okay, I can see how people could view that. I can see how the propaganda machine, which is also really well represented in this mm-hmm. book, right? Yeah. Like all the little chapter he- headings about um, the media kind of trying to spin it around and make her look weak and make her look like she only cares about her planet. And how, you know, Bale and Mon Mothma say, people think you only care about Naboo. And she's like, why is that bad? They go, no, 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 you got to play the game. Right. And I can totally see how people can think that based on her actions, even though it's so clear all her actions are altruistic um, at heart. They're all for helping people. And honestly, at the end of the day, I think one of the sad truths of the prequels is that it is that desire and that love for others and that selflessness that kind of aids in her downfall at the end because she, at the end of the day with Anakin, just wants to help him and wants to love him and wants to like take care of him and figure out how they can have their life together. She's not playing the larger game. She's not thinking about galactic politics. She's not thinking about Siths. Like, and, and unfortunately, because of that... Um, I think it leads into her blindness on how far he's gone down the wrong path. So having it start with this, this element of, you know, becoming the, the Senator that just wanted to take over the Senate and having her be on the defensive from the start was a really stark choice. And next time I watch Phantom Menace and then attack of the clones, I'm definitely going to have that in mind. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm going to have that in mind in particular when she calls for that vote of no confidence and just seeing Valorum sit down and look so defeated um, is, yeah. I mean, again. we know why it's a good idea. Oh, for sure. But, like, the other senators are like, okay, I've had war on my planet all the time. Like, yeah. What? I mean, think about how you massive know? this that Senate chamber is, and each one of those little pods represents one 
planet or one system and they probably mm-hmm. yeah i mean exactly right what you're saying they're, they're probably like who cares that like there's a blockade on your planet like we have other issues that we need to attend to you roll in here and basically cut the head of the senate off and then just leave <laughs> like just drop the mic and leave that's insane yeah uh so i, I am gonna look at that differently. wild yeah and especially when you know she decides to leave early to go to alderaan for a bit and be like cool uh, this is hard. I did some work, but everyone's yelling at me. Peace out. Yeah. Like I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go for a bit. And again, being in her head, we understand it, which I think might be a greater commentary as well on like all these other characters. If we think their actions might be rash, we think their actions might not necessarily make sense. Maybe they got a lot more going on, and they need a book as well. You know? Bring on, bring it on all the books. I'm, I'm ready. Yes, please. Now talking about some of Padme's views from the Phantom Menace, there's a line or a couple of lines rather that really struck me from page 159. And I'm going to read them here to you. Um, It says, Padme looked past the shining lights of Coruscant's wealthy upper levels and down into the poorer, more dangerous parts of the city planet. She couldn't see very far. She had the idea that was how Coruscant liked it. Naboo had tried that once, dividing the population against itself, and the result had been almost world-ending. Padme resolved to pay attention, not just listen, and not just look, but see. Mm -hmm. I thought that was beautiful, one. Two, I never would have drawn that parallel about thinking about those those lower levels of Coruscant, like those, those bowels of Coruscant correlating to how the Gungans were living in the lakes on Naboo. And then up above it, you have just the palace of Theed and all the wealth up there and all the people who, who just seem to not care about the Gungans at all. And for Padme to recognize that, I think it makes sense with her backstory, but too, I think it really speaks to her character in that she's looking for these injustices and she's looking to correct them. Even when you have a, an entire planet that is just one giant city and you would think that this is so obvious to everyone that's there, it's not. And But she sees it. She sees right to the heart of the issue. Yeah, and, you know, we see that in Phantom Menace when she's talking to Anakin and she goes, you're a slave? Because she, she's like so confused as to what that concept is because she doesn't see it at home. And then she's everything, she, every new thing that she has met with, every new injustice, as you said, I really enjoy how she kind of takes it, learns from it, and then tries to fix it. Takes it, learns from it, tries to fix it. Again, sometimes to her detriment. Sometimes, you know, she tries so hard and she feels every loss, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of politicians kind of separate themselves from. But this moment especially is so impactful because it shows – you know how big her capacity is to empathize with with those that, that she doesn't even know i mean she uses a personal experience with the gungans to attribute that same compassion and thought to quadrillions of people that she'll never meet you know in Coruscant, you know i think this this passage is also great because johnson johnston opens up our eyes to kind of the sick machinations of that planet. You know, it's definitely intentional that it's so busy. It's definitely intentional that it is trying to, like, you know, overwhelm you with stimulation so you don't think about the people on the lower levels. It's very clearly divided. Um, There's tons of books that all take place on Coruscant that are all about that. And for Padme to be able to look through it and see the secrets as a new senator, as a young person, 
you know, kind of the same way that Bale is, is able to just look through her disguise and see her, mm-hmm. speaks to two of the most compassionate and intelligent people in the Senate. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have put that better myself. And and you mentioned about Padme being faced with slavery for the first time in The Phantom Menace, and we see that idea come up a lot in this book as well. Um, we see Padme sending Sabe off to try to go free slaves on Tatooine now that she's aware of that injustice from everything that happened in The Phantom Menace. We also see her trying to get involved on a senatorial level, and we see her kind of getting... I don't know, boxed out of that area of policy by Palpatine. And and I kind of want to talk a little bit about that and hear your thoughts on it because I wasn't really clear if Palpatine, is he really in the know enough that he was intentionally doing this, keeping her out of any of that policy because he thought she could really make a change there? That's exactly what I read into it. And yeah. I think that ultimately that respect by Palpatine to say if Padme is on this committee she is so good at this already Mm -hmm. that she could possibly like set things in motion that could free Shmi Skywalker bring her back and stop Anakin from going down the dark dark path and destroy his entire plans for the history of the Sith is nuts it's amazing like it's the idea that Padme is such an important character that possibly the most powerful Sith Lord of all time is kind of afraid of her political savvy and at and like her drive speaks volumes. You know, just that little motion. Once you, you read those passages and realize that Palpatine is just saying, "Oh no, 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 you're not, you're not going to be in those committees." Like it, and really trying to smooth talk her around it. Right. You can tell he's afraid, and this is not a guy that ever gets afraid. You know, and the fact that he's afraid of Padme above all, and is worried. About Padme more than Mon Mothma, more than Bale, more than anyone else speaks more than, a, honestly, an entire other book could. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, when I was looking at it, I was really thinking of it more as, oh, Palpatine needs there to be these social injustices so that he can, you know, further kind of draw these lines in between people and, and cause them to yep. fight each other so that they don't notice what he's doing. But I really, I didn't even think to the point that he was doing this specifically because of Shmi Skywalker. So that's a really interesting thought that he was, that he yeah. was manipulating things down to that small of a level galaxy wide policy to keep one person enslaved to ensure that Anakin would fall to the dark side. That is just mind blowing. Like, and, and, and I think what you, what you say is, is also definitely true. You know, the, the idea of him further dividing and whether, this minutia is necessarily intentional who could speak to it. But the fact that you can easily draw the line is so much fun. And what, oh, are, yeah. what are star Wars books other than trying to have the most fun possible, right? Connecting the so dots I, is what all of this is about. Even if it's just your yes. head cannon, like it's so fun <laughs> to, to figure those things out. Um, Absolutely. Well, Hey, speaking of those dots uh, at this point, we're going to take a real fast break. My friends, let you kind of bathe, in the warm water that is that realization about the power of Padme in the face of Palpatine, and we will be right back. Hey, Living Force listeners, it's Jared here, host of Legends Look Back. What's better than a Wookiee? That's right, a Wookiee with a lightsaber. I just want to take a second to share my love for one of the best characters in the Legends books, and that's Chewbacca's Jedi nephew, Lobaka. 
Loi is one of the supporting characters from the Young Jedi Knights series, a student at Luke Skywalker's Jedi Academy on Yavin 4. In the books, he has one defining character trait in that he's a tech whiz, always ready and able to slice into a security system or fix a ship. Uh, the trouble is, of course, the other characters are not so great at speaking Shuriwook. Well, to solve the problem, Lobaka has his own personal mini-protocol droid, MTD, strapped to his belt to help make sense of his growls to all of his little Jedi friends. One of the weird things is that he wields a bronze lightsaber, but it mostly looks red on the book covers. He, at one point, even joined an anti-human terror organization, but uh, we won't talk too much about that. After the Young Jedi Knights, he goes on to have a supporting role in the New Jedi Order series as Jaina's loyal mechanic, always ready with a listening ear through Jaina's many struggles through her love triangle with Zek and Jag Fell. You see, Lobaka's the stable, loyal successor to Chewbacca's lineage and a fierce fighter, and you should totally check him out. After all, like Jaina, we all need somebody to have our backs especially when that somebody is a Wookiee with a life debt and a lightsaber. Enjoy the rest of the show. May the Force be with you. And we are back! Oh, mid-show clips, mid-rolls, joy, handmaidens. We got it all, folks. Charles, where were we talking about our favorite uh, possible savior of the galaxy, <laughs> were it not? For, <laughs> like, ah. This book, dude, made me so doubly, triply, quadruply sad that Padme's gone. Because oh, no. even what we were just talking about with the fact that she is the linchpin that may have, that could have potentially stopped Palpatine's rise or Vader's fall. Like, if she had only gotten on a committee or had only, like, found Shmi and, like, you know... The fact that she has that it's, much influence is, is incredible. It is, and that's something that we're going to come back around to in a little while. I have my own Sweet. little uh, Charles's Stupid game. and um, Yes! <laughs> oh, my God. And the thing is, listeners, I'm not looking at an outline right now. Only Charles has the prop, I kept this so I'm going to be secret. so surprised. I love it. Listen, Eric and I have already talked for four hours probably about this book, so I didn't think that he needed an outline. And also, I've been like flying by the seat of my pants for this, so... It's I both of it. those. Um, but yeah, so we, we were talking about basically what could have derailed Padme from from causing major changes galaxy-wide. And we talked about Palpatine, who certainly was one big factor. But I want to talk about another, and that's Padme's relationship with Anakin. Because yeah. she said something in this book that really struck me. It was painful to read this. Um, page 239. I believe she was talking to Sabe about potentially settling down, starting a family. And she said this, I don't know what I'd do. I've guarded my heart against everything for so long, always aware of the dynamics and the flow of power. I've been lucky to find so many people who understand that and give me that space. I'm afraid that if someone breaks through, I'll let them and it would be catastrophic. Where do you think that came from like like she's absolutely right i mean that that was yeah. basically a jedi prophecy about her right. <laughs> relationship with anakin but how in the world do you think that she rightly predicts that if she gets into a relationship it would lead to catastrophe 
I think she, at this point, has so much wherewithal. Because she's been in the political game for four years, right? She had her terms as queen, um, and now she's rocking out the senator life. She's been around it long enough to know that this is going to be her career, essentially. This is her life going forward, no matter what. And she hasn't let someone in on that level, I guess, until until this point, right? And she's not really seeing how it's possible, doesn't see how it fits. But she also knows how empathetic she was. We were talking earlier about how she has empathy for the entirety of Coruscant, right? Mm-hmm. Without even knowing anyone. So she has so much empathy for every one of her handmaidens. She cares about them so much. I think she knows that I can feel this much for people I don't know and even for my closest friends. I can just imagine how much I'll feel for my life partner, right? For a romantic partner. Sure. There's no way she wouldn't give her all, you know, because – she doesn't have the ability to cro- to close herself off emotionally, which makes her so effective as a leader and as a queen and as a friend, but also makes her so vulnerable. I think that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that definitely makes sense. It's, when I read that, it, it really was another one of those moments that made me kind of stop and and think. And, it, and it's heartbreaking to know that she rightly predicts where this is going, but uh, still, you know, wants to have that relationship with Anakin. Um, yeah. and, and we'll probably come back around to that a little bit later on as well, but let's talk about some more heartbreaking things. Uh, let's so go, let's dive right into it. Let's, you and I were just, not? you and I were just talking over the break a little bit about Queen's Peril, which we're going to steer clear of here on the actual live show, but we were talking about how bad the, the invasion of Naboo really was. And mm-hmm. on page 251, we see Padme say that C.O. Bibble, one of my favorite background characters. Amazing. Yeah. She says that he, quote, essentially supervised a massacre. And that line also really surprised me because the Phantom Menace doesn't spend time on Naboo when the invasion is happening. It, it, it leaves with Padme. You go to Tatooine, mm-hmm. and you know some bad things are going down because C.O. Bibble is sending those text messages, you know, like, hey, right. guys, please, please help. Please contact me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, that's think about those words. Like, he supervised a massacre, and he was left there to deal with that on his own. I think that's just... It's it's great that this book is bringing attention to that and that Queen's Peril might do that some more. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things, too, about history as a whole. You know, we, we, we name all these battles in human history as massacres or the battle of whatever, and there's a number of people that died, and it's so separate, mm-hmm. right? Because you just remember it yeah. as an event. But then if you actually think about the definitions of these words and – what actually probably happened, the invasion of Naboo, the, you know, Padme grew up and as she, when she was queen, she had to look as a, an army marched down the streets, took her captive, like all these things happened. And if we separate them from the cool Jedi laser sword part of it, it's pretty horrific for this peace loving people. And right. I, I agree. I think this did a really great job of having someone that came from trauma in that way at such a young age kind of evolve. And I think that's definitely where a large part of her empathy has to come from. You know, she at the, at the ripe age, it was like 14 or 15 had her planet taken over essentially and had to witness injustices. And, you know, her handmaidens did the same. They talk about, you know, Sasha's scars and stuff. And they're like, you know, they grew up so quickly that it's easy for us to write off 
the quote unquote invasion. But I'm but this book really will like we keep keep saying it'll make you watch Phantom Menace differently because you'll understand the gravity of what's happening. Yeah, I I think you're right. I can't wait to go back and watch the Phantom Menace after reading this book again, um, mm-hmm. it, and really just see Padme's evolution with kind of new eyes. And ultimately, we know that Padme doesn't really want to be involved in in all of these galactic politics. Like she she doesn't want to oh. have to be. I should say, um, she just wants basically everyone to sing Kumbaya and get along. Uh, she she wants to be a pacifist if she can be. But she understands that she can't be with a lot of the circumstances that are going on galaxy-wide. And she has this quiet moment with Sabe on page 273 that really struck me as well. Just yet another of the heartbreaking moments in this book. And mm-hmm. Padme's talking to Sabe and she says, we'll come back here, you and I. We'll do what we need to do out there and then we'll come home. And it says, Sabe rested her head on Padme's shoulder, felt the press of Padme's cheek against her hair, and neither of them doubted it for a moment. And, I mean, what do you say? Like, knowing how this ends and and, and the epilogue and seeing how heartbroken Sabe is by things that happen. I mean, wow. Yeah. Like we said in in our previous episode, they really – nail the intimacy of the friendship that they have and i think in this way you know we, we just talked about how difficult it can be to write prequels where we know what's happening this is how you do it right that's that's the stuff you put in the hope the characters have and us as readers have the dramatic irony where we know they won't get to go back home and we can't tell them that and so we yeah. just have to witness it and stand by idly and that's heartbreaking for us as well you know that's why we're feeling this emotion because when you love characters like we do in Star Wars, like you love them on the page, you love them on the screen, when bad things are going to happen to them, you want to stop those bad things because you mm-hmm. love them. And reading that passage, we know they're not going to get that relief, and we just got to kind of – we got to wait. We got to stand by and watch it happen, and it's hard. It is, and I, I mean it makes you think about yourself too. I mean these are conversations that we have day in and day out, and we – we don't know how our books end. And so just seeing those moments when you do know how these characters stories ends. I mean, it's just, it's tough. It's tough. And it makes you kind of reflect on yourself as well. But yeah, you know, some people though can see into the future. Uh, Jedi, for example, Yeah, man, we got a cool, uh, Depa Balaba cameo in this book. Uh, yeah, while, when they went to Brom Large. It was cool. It's one of those Jedi who we really don't know that much about, but we got to spend some time with and, and who certainly had an impact on Padme in the short time that they had together in this book. And knowing that Jedi can see somewhat, kind of, into the future, right? Um, mm-hmm. Can have premonitions or feelings. And I thought it was really cool to, to hear what Balaba's evaluation of Padme was. And we see that on page 295. And she says, You've not changed very much since the first time I met you. Padme wasn't entirely sure what to make of that, and it must have shown on her face, but the Jedi Master continued, You've grown, of course. You're wiser. You're more balanced. But you haven't changed. You're still the person who took on the Trade Federation. And I think you always will be. And then it says it was the oddest compliment Padme had ever received, including the time a small boy on a desert world had assumed she was an angel, but she was pleased by it nonetheless. She'd been wondering about herself, about the path she would take, 
Jedi could see things that no one else did, and Padme trusted in their vision as much as any non-Jedi could. There's so much to unpack there, but just what are your initial thoughts of what Balaba said about her always being that person who takes takes on the Trade Federation? The line, yeah, that line, you are still the person who took on the Trade Federation, and I think you always will be, is up there for like line of the book for me. I think mm-hmm. it is one of the most incredible descriptions of a character that I've read in Star Wars. And I, I had an old acting teacher that always told me, when I'm making a character for stage, right, you read a script, and the first thing you got to do is figure out what your character says about themselves and what other characters say about you. So that's how you build this person. So to have someone like this say this about Padme tells us so much about their character because this is a person that can see a bit of the future, like we're saying, that is honorable as far as we know, that has no reason to, you know, flatter or insult Padme. She's just saying what she sees. And the truth of the matter of Padme being the person who took on the Trade Federation really kind of hits home that this was a 14-year-old girl that took on an empire, and she won, you know, which is incredible and something that gets lost in a lot of the, you know, the less-than-stellar parts of the Phantom Menace and the prequel trilogy. We kind of forget that she did that, and the fact that she hasn't lost her convictions, that she still has empathy, which, in the eyes of a lot of the senators and the media, as this book shows, makes her weak, it makes her lesser, actually makes her stronger in the eyes of a Jedi. And I also can infer by reading that passage, maybe Depa Balaba doesn't see that very often. You know? Which is interesting coming from a Jedi, right? I mean, you would think that she would see that all the time. That's really, Jedi should be standing for many of the same ideals that that I think that Padme stands for. So that's an interesting thought. Um, it also yeah. makes me wonder how the, the second bit that I read about how Padme trusted in, in the vision of the Jedi as much as any non-Jedi could. It makes me question how much she must have thought about Anakin's visions of the future mm-hmm. once they were a couple. Oh, yeah. In the, uh, in the infamous uh, shirtless Anakin scenes in the- Revenge of the Sith, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> even in the... the the more shirted ones in Attack of the Clones, right? The, yeah, the, 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 uh, the lesser important ones, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think in the Revenge of the Sith specifically, you know, th- when he says, I have a vision, you die in childbirth, the fact that she believes so much in this is probably, like, terrifying for her. And she says, you know, I'm not going to die and tries to reassure him. But, yeah, you're right. Now on rewatch, like, she probably she probably believes him absolutely, and she's trying to reassure and trying to help him but she probably knows she may which have put is more even stock. sadder yeah yeah she may have put more stock in that than we realized Jeez. Um, yeah i this book is heartbreaking man this, this is, is hard this is like the deeper you go the sadder it gets man <laughs> tragic star hey, as, as the sky talkers say star wars is tragedy it is it sure is uh, it, I want to talk about it, just a couple more quotes I want to throw out that I think really speak to the spirit of Padme. And we don't have to spend too much time on it because we still have quite a bit to cover. But um, I thought these were important just to mention. Uh, when she was talking about Shada B. Boren, which still makes me laugh, but the planet where all the aliens <laughs> died because their sun burnt out, essentially. Clovis asked Padme if she would go through that entire experience again, trying to save them, even though... They all died. And she says, of course I would. Maybe next time one of our scientists would figure out soon enough 
to save someone. Maybe next time there would be survivors. I would try a thousand times, Clovis, even if I only ever saved one being. I would try 10,000 times. I mean, that's just, that's classic Padme. Like, that's that, the character. Again, yeah. yeah, that is the character. Um, and then again, we have on page 307, Lord and Savior Bail Organa says to Padme, yeah. I know it's a horrifying situation, but you can't fight every evil in the galaxy. And Padme responds, evil? I fought evil and it was easy. I shot it. It's apathy that I can't stand. <laughs> man, that, if that ain't the line for the world we live in right now, man, like... It is so easy to identify evil when it's evil, yeah. but it's so much harder to convince someone to care. Yeah. And I think that is probably the most meta thing about politics in this book. Um, I think that exists. I think that it is Padme saying, you know, how do people not see that people are people and I'm going to keep doing this fight and how dare you assume I wouldn't is, is also her. Even to Bale, who is a friend, who is a trusted friend, you know, right. no. she's calling him out. She's like, dude, what do you mean? Which is why, like we said in the last episode, her voice in the rebellion. Can you imagine? You know? Oh, I, I really, I can. And we're going to <laughs> talk about that. But all right. You know, I, I, the apathy part is really interesting because you're right. We see that every day in in our real life and this is on one planet and in many cases in one country and we're talking about a a just massive amount of planets that are in the senate and it's incredibly easy to see how one could become apathetic to the struggles of other planets and other populations and other species because it must feel so far away to them knowing how it can feel far away even to people here in the United States or, or whatever country. And I'm sure it applies there as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, like it, it just makes sense. Yeah. Out of sight, out of mind. And Padme is ref- like, I refuse. She refuses to give into it. Yeah. She's amazing. I, it's, it's fantastic. Um, okay. I, I want to talk about another thing that I think you and I talked about the first time we discussed this book, or maybe it was the second time we discussed this book. I don't know. Uh, it all blends together, but I want to talk yes, about Mina Bonteri's conversations with the stranger, the, yeah. the person that she talks to on the comm. I want to know, who do you think she's speaking with in these private conversations? Is it potentially Dooku? Is it potentially Sidious? And and how do you think that you know that it is who you think it is? The first time, I thought it was Sidious. Mm-hmm. Um, just I've, some of the description just felt like that, and then the second time I, there were some descriptors, and I'm forgetting the page number right now. But I, I there was stuff that made me think it's definitely Dooku, and then I thought to myself, and I'm like, there is no way that Sidious would reveal himself to her because she's just a senator. Right. Like he is not talking to anyone but Dooku and the Trade Federation. You know, right. he's not going to reveal his part in the plan to someone that isn't you know, already under his leash. So I think it's, it's gotta be Dooku. I think you're, I think you're right on it, When I first read this, I thought it was Sidious as well, but you're absolutely right. There's no reason for him to reveal himself. And we do know that Mina Bonteri eventually does join the separatists, which mm-hmm. Dooku was the head of the separatists. So it really does make sense. When you look at the lines that are said by this stranger themselves, one of them is do as you must, but if you cannot control the situation, I will step in and control it for you. And the other one is just see that you do, Senator. I think both of those sound like things that Dooku would say. Like, 
using the title of senator he's very formal always like it just it sounds very much like dooku yeah and he's like i'll step in if i must Sidious isn't gonna do that right unless it's you know something but he would send his apprentice or something he's he's not getting his hands dirty of any for any reason yet exactly before the clone wars I think the one line that kind of made it seem like, oh, maybe this is Sidious, was uh, on page 334, and it says that Padme stopped walking as Bonteri looked up and saw her. She thought a flash of fear might have gone through the other senator's eyes, but couldn't imagine what her friend would be afraid of. And so that might imply, like, this is someone to really be feared, like, potentially a Sidious. But you know what? After reading Dooku Jedi Lost and really knowing more and more about that character, Dooku's pretty fear-inspiring. Great point, great point. He's a scary man. <coughs> he is that darn beautiful beard of his and his Dookie. sword play skills. Okay. He's so good in Battlefront. He's so good in the in the silk pajamas. Um you gotta. Alright, so it's time for Charles' stupid game here before yes! we get to the epilogue. And basically the the framework of this game is that Padme had a profound impact on not just the initial formation of the rebellion in the empire, but also in the fall of Anakin. And there are a ton of specific story points that had to play out exactly how they did to bring about the situation that we find ourselves in at the beginning of a new hope. Right. And and we've kind of discussed that a little bit already here, but knowing that I want to play a what if game where we talk about what might've happened if some of those individual story points had played out differently. There's no right answer, obviously, but I'm just curious to hear what you think. And so there are only a few, but point number one, we we saw a lot of tug, almost a tug of war for Padme's allegiances between Mon Mothma and Mina Bonteri. And they both represented potential uh, mentors for Padme. Uh, And obviously, ultimately, Mon Mothma won. But how do you think things might have turned out differently if Padme had aligned with Mina Monteri instead of Mon Mothma. Ooh, I think Padme, I think she could have joined the Separatists. Okay. Because I think by the, by the end of Revenge of the Sith, at least, I think we realize that she is seeing through the veil of the Republic into the Empire. Like, she, she, she knows she's too late. She knows democracy is dying, right? That being said... I don't think – I think she stays with Mina and vocally opposes Dooku in the Senate of the Separatists. Uh, I think there's a distinct chance that Dooku tries to assassinate her mm. uh, for on even though she's on his own side. But if all of this happens, I don't think she and Anna can get together. And maybe the loss of her, the potential loss of her, doesn't exist and he doesn't go down the dark side as quickly. You know, because at the end he says he wants to save Padme's life. That's the reason. So you don't think Anakin would have had a different, <laughs> a different lover? I, think, and I twins mean, with... there may have been something. Well, because like Padme, you know, imprinted on him when he was like nine. So I think that a decade <laughs> later, oh, she's gone, man. Sorry, she's a separatist now. Oh, bummer. Cool fight. Like, <laughs> I think it's a slightly different <laughs> trajectory for our boy Anakin. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think that she joins. She could join Mina maybe be unaffiliated maybe be like a Satine that wants to live between both and just kind of call them both out for their idiocy yeah um 
I could see that. Yeah. I could definitely see. I mean, she basically says at the end of everything that maybe the separatists were right. So I could see her being swayed that, that way, certainly. Um, all right. Question number two. I think that this one's a bit more interesting. What do you think would have happened if Sabe had actually managed to find and free Shmi Skywalker? Oh, man. I love that one. Um... I think, I think Padme goes to Tatooine, or Shmi comes to Naboo. She wouldn't bring her to Coruscant, I don't think. Hmm. I, at least not immediately, right? I think she frees her, brings her on. I think that she maybe brings Shmi into her personal service. Maybe not as a handmaiden, maybe as like, you know come with me live with me on Coruscant be an aide to me and then like you can see your son whenever you want um because that's the question too you know the Jedi are supposed to stay away from their families that's kind of a big thing right so I think that would have been a shake up but might, just knowing that she was alive might, might have been something might Palpatine have gotten further involved to keep Shmi away from Anakin ooh yeah nah he would have because he tried to keep her off the committee anyway. I think Palpatine maybe sends... Maybe he sends Maul to kill her? Ooh. Does he go that far? Oh, my God. You know? Or not Maul at that point. Dooku, I guess. Yeah, I guess it would have had to be Dooku. Does he send but, Dooku to kill her? But imagine that backdrop in the the duels between Anakin and Dooku. And, yeah. it, and it would make Anakin beheading him that much more sympathetic i don't know i mean it yeah, understandable well, it was pure vengeance at that point it is yeah you know which is also very dark um and maybe he goes through the same emotional journey of like you know i was too late to save you because i couldn't stop you from the sith so i'm gonna i, I need to be more powerful than any sith it so i think i still that yeah. that whole thing still works but i definitely think padme tries to bring shmi in uh, yeah. To her own personal employment in some way. Again, like, freeze her, but I think Shmi could be like, no, I'd love to come with you. I, it would be great. I'd love to see other planets. I never thought I'd leave Tatooine, and to be near my son, you know, would be beautiful. Yeah, so, I like it. I think that makes perfect sense. the Jedi definitely don't let them live together, Anakin and Shmi. No. Like, they don't... <laughs> You know, they're too stringent on that. But can you imagine if they were a little looser, bring Shmi in, let her work on the archives or something? Like, Yeah. I mean, Yoda cool. might come in randomly and tell Anakin who his father is. I don't know. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. If How you don't get that, though. go back and listen to our Dooku Jedi Lost Roundtable. Um, okay. Does. Last what if question that I mm-hmm. think is probably the, the most interesting of all of them. What oh, if? Oh, yeah, hit me. Padme survived childbirth. It's so good. It's it's the best. I think she keeps Luke and Leia hidden. I think that that definitely happens. Um, and she keeps Luke and Leia hidden because of the safety, and she goes to the rebellion, and with Bail and Mon, and I think Sabe goes with her. Mm-hmm. And I think the two of them become a pillar of the rebellion. I think that there's also a distinct chance that maybe Padme goes and lives on Alderaan with Bale and Bria as like 
a uh, an attendant or something. It's like or like an aunt to Leia. It's like, oh, this is your aunt Padme. She's gonna you know help her out so she can still help raise her and be near her and maybe someday they tell her. But I think there is definitely something to her staying close and keeping a tabs on her. But ultimately, she is. We, we end this book by Sabe finding all the plans that Padme had to revolutionize the universe and help the galaxy. And I think she becomes a freedom fighter with Bail and Mon. And she helps form everything the Rebellion becomes. She's on missions. She's out in the field. She's doing. She becomes the Leia of the Resistance, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that. She accomplishes all these things through Leia, but I think that she would have been involved personally if she could have been. So, yes, absolutely fun thought experiment, but very let's fun. Move, let's move on from the what ifs of things that we know can't happen and talk about the what ifs of things that might happen. So Fantastic. let's talk about this epilogue. Let's. Um, we, we get Padme's funeral and... Then after that scene, we get Sabe returning home to Tanra and being very distraught. And Tanra basically asks her a very simple question. He asks her, what will you do? And Sabe basically says, uh, I'm going to find out what happened to my friend. Like, it's very simple, very matter of fact. Like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Now, we understand that as readers, that getting to the bottom of that would mean understanding things that few people in the galaxy do. That would be understanding Palpatine. That would be understanding Vader and that he was Anakin and everything that happened on Mustafar. That would potentially mean understanding that Obi-Wan Kenobi is alive and in hiding yeah. <laughs> with Luke Skywalker. And, you right. know, there's so many, there's so much to unpack just from that statement that she makes that she's going to find out what happened. Mm-hmm. Where do you think this is going? Because then we also get the call from, Bail Organa, who says uh, that he has a, a proposition for her, basically. And we don't know exactly what that means either. But where do you see all of this going? My one major statement. Because, mm-hmm. again, we, we try to manage expectations. I have thought about this for a year. I am solid in my opinion. I believe Sabe is the first agent of Fulcrum. Oh. I believe... She starts the Fulcrum program. Um, I believe she is the first agent. And I think Bail Organa is like her spy master at the start. And she is yeah. going on missions initially for her own selfish gain. Says like, I'll do this for you. But we need, I'll build these contacts to the Rebel Alliance. But while I'm doing that, I'm searching for my friend and, and trying to figure out what happened this whole time. And so, Bail's like, deal. So if Sabe is potentially involved in Fulcrum... Mm-hmm. Would we have ever gotten the opportunity to see her and Ahsoka? I think so. That's. I mean, my yeah. dream is for this Cassian Andor show to be a fulcrum show, essentially. That's like my pipe dream is that we don't have the title yet because the title is Star Wars Fulcrum. Yeah. And it's Cassian as a fulcrum agent, which we, that is confirmed. We do know he, he was a fulcrum agent. And it's him and Sabe and Ahsoka working under the guise of Bill Organa. And I think I love that. I think that's Take where it goes. I think, yeah, exactly. That's that is my ultimate dream of dreams. Any future Star Wars project, that's what I want because I believe the t- the timing worked out perfectly for all of them. Um, they were all around at that point, 
we are we know Cassian was in Fulcrum. Boom. We see him and Bale in Rogue One together. We know Ahsoka was Fulcrum, and Bale Organa is in the Rebel Alliance and Rebels. And then at the end of this book, Sabe gets a phone call from Bale Organa before, a little bit before all of that. Like, it fits. It all fits. So, I think earnestly that Sabe is using all her skills she has. She's an espionage agent already from the time she was fourteen until now. It just makes sense for her to do it for the rebellion, and I think it's a perfect way. Business-wise, if we want to go to the larger meta for you know Disney to bring in more prequels to the OT stuff, they like to mm. weave stuff together. Um, so yeah, get Kira Knightley in that show. <laughs> that's that's that is that is what I think happens. Well, if you can recast someone in the Star Wars universe, you could probably recast Sabe, but <laughs> not Leia. Probably, but, but, Sabe. but hey, Kira Knightley, like sure, I'll do like I'll do an episode or two. You know, <laughs> bring her in. Oh, man. Well, I, you know what? I hope you're right, man. I think that's a fantastic idea. And I know that Queen's Peril is more a prequel to Queen's Shadow, but maybe this is the middle chapter. Maybe there is going to be a sequel to this in a book form, too. We don't know. I mean, if we're getting a, a new Padme book every single year, great. Bring it um, on. I mean, all right, what if we had, because chronologically then it's Queen's Peril, Queen's Shadow. What if the next one? All right, here, here. Dumb prediction time. The next one is going to be Queen's Legacy. Oh, and that'll I love be next it. year. All right, all there right, you go. You, you heard it I'll here. I'll try first. to remember that I said it. <laughs> <laughs> Our listeners will remember, so that when it's not that, they, you guys will immediately tell me in Discord. <laughs> <laughs> They're not shy about telling us when we're wrong, and we thank them for that. We do. Um, we need to know. Okay, well, so that's kind of that rounds out all of my overarching questions. But as always, there are some fun facts and Easter eggs to run through here before we're done. So, if you're prepared, let's start running through them. Let's go. All right, page 10, very first one that I caught Veermocks are mentioned. And these are the creatures that Tarkin hunts on uh, the planet Iriadu in the Tarkin novel. Awesome. So, that's cool. Uh, Page 12. Uh, this is a great reference. It says, when they reached the grassy hill at the base of the wide stone stairs, Padme stopped to brush off her feet. They all halted with her. Sand, she said by way of explanation. <laughs> I hate it's sand. It's a course. Ugh. Irritating. Not all like right. you. You're so smooth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, moving on as quickly as humanly possible. Page 37. Padme Where are you mentions- going? <laughs> Padme mentions that she supported Jamilia as the next queen of Naboo, but that she lost the election to Relata. Now, we know that Jamilia ultimately wins the next election because Padme meets with her in Attack of the Clones once she is the queen. So that's just yeah. a nice, nice little reference. Perseverance. There you go. Um, page 41, Five Blossom Bread is mentioned as the celebratory dish for Sashay's election into the Legislative Assembly. In Season 2, Episode 4 of The Clone Wars, Senate Spy, Padme mentions that Five Blossom Bread is one of her specialties. Fantastic. So that's cool. Um, page 48, here's a quote for you. It's easy to make light of it now that the troubles have passed, Bibble said, uncharacteristically serious. Really? Un- uncharacteristic have we ever seen co bibble be anything but serious i want to run through some of his most famous quotes of like his five lines in the prequels here we go a communications right, disruption can mean only one thing invasion 
Number two, the death toll is catastrophic. We must bow to their wishes. You must contact me. Number three, it's unthinkable. There hasn't been a full-scale war since the formation of the Republic. Oh, yeah, he's a barrel of laughs, Eric. He's, he's, <laughs> he's a goof. Always down for a pint, that guy. <laughs> okay, moving on from Bibble, my absolute Bibble, favorite. Bibble, I can't do shots. It's a Tuesday. Come on! <laughs> Oh, life of the party. Page 67, uh, we spend some time with Padme's parents, and we talked about that before, but, you know, they're straight up out of the deleted scenes for Attack of the Clones, so that was fun. Um, random, random little thing here. All of the Hollow News clips that were in the audiobook version of this, which I had never heard before. This was the first time that I listened to the audiobook. I got yeah. such a Pokemon TV show vibe from those. Did you? Oh, you know what sure. I'm talking about with wow. like the little digital music in the background, and like it literally sounded like the narrator at the beginning of every Pokemon episode. But okay, that was just a That's random thing I had to throw out there. I know we have some Pokemon fans <laughs> in the listening audience as well. Totally. All right, pa- page eighty-two. Uh, it's revealed that people light incense on Naboo every year in remembrance of those who fell to fight off the Trade Federation. And Padme specifically says that she lights some incense for Qui-Gon Jinn every year. I thought that was beautiful, some love for Qui-Gon. Yeah, I mean, the, the relationship they had in that movie was so it was so quick, but it was clearly so impactful, and I, and I love that little note. Didn't have to dwell on it, but just m- mentioned it. Yeah, it's those tiny little things that tie all these things together. Yeah. Um, like on page 113, when Rick Ollier is mentioned, Rick Sabe supposedly... Ollier! acquired her ship at his recommendation and of course you'll remember Olier as the pilot who flew the queen's royal starship off of naboo during her rescue from the trade federation forces yeah. so and we thought it was going to be such a big deal for episode one because he had the toy he was like the first toy line he was he one was. of the initial releases and he had two lines or so uh but that's okay we love him anyways. we didn't hit it <laughs> oh man all right, the, the next thing I want to bring up is, uh, I don't have a page number for you, but just a question, just a mm-hmm. casual question for you, and that is where the actual hell did Nani go in this story? Every other senator in the entire Senate has a Nani droid, and Padme's goes in for repair once and literally just never comes back for the rest of the entire book, which yeah. is like a year of gal of, of like in universe time. I, I know thought this too it last year, but I realized she got R two. That was her thing. She switched to R two. I know, but everyone else has one. Like Bale has one. I know, but they're lame. And they're well, her started to lame. kill her. <laughs> That's fair. She got an R2. Oh, nice Nani. I have an Astromech. That was a hero <laughs> at the Battle of Naboo. Well, speaking of that, I mean, on page 240, R2-D2 plays a really big role. And, and I loved this because R2 carries the Handmaiden's suitcases to the ship. And that just that really got me because he's the hero of Naboo, the handiest droid in the galaxy, and now he's a bellhop. And, yep. and I just thought yep. that was great. It's like in Solo when uh, when when Chewie is carrying the coaxium <laughs> at the end. It's like, here you go, Chewie, carry the heavy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're here. Um, okay, page 115. We do get a mention of Watto and Shmi, and Sabe just calls Watto the junk trader. Uh, but we know exactly who she's talking about. And yeah, you know I love yeah. me some Watto. Yeah. 
He's the best. He is the best. Um, all right, page 170. This is probably my favorite Easter egg that I picked up on, and I only picked up on it because I was listening to the audiobook. But there's a Naboo guard named Corin. Yes. I totally missed that. Now, it's, it's spelled differently. I checked in the book. It's spelled C-O-R-I-N, but that has got to be an intentional shout-out to Corin Horn. I refuse to believe be. anything other than that. Gotta be. Oh, my God. Okay. Corey must have lost his mind. He must have been so happy. It's a good thing Corey's not here for that. <laughs> um, page 177, Anaconda Far, a.k.a. Uncle Anno, makes an appearance, and we know Uncle him well Anno. from his appearances on the Clone Wars television series, yeah. most memorably when he is poisoned but that's okay yeah he's a rough look for him yeah it was was a tough day it's a tough day um page 181 is my personal favorite line in the entire book and i quote it was a remarkable relief to wear pants hell yes indeed it must have been okay page 198 the entire sabe and tanra hookup scene really it made me laugh it made me laugh and i'm gonna tell you why I read it the first time I read the book, and it was and it was spicy. It really was. Yeah, it was, it's a spicy scene. It is. Um, but I just have to say, when listening to the audiobook, I want you to go back and check me on this. But I swear to you, as that scene closes, they play the Imperial March in, in the background. Oh, they do. They totally do. Because you know why? What? Sex is the devil, Charles. <laughs> it's sinful. Oh, man, I rewound it and listened to it like three times, and I, I went and told Nicole about it, and she doesn't care. But that's how like <laughs> you gotta how know. funny that was. I had to tell someone immediately. Oh, yeah, I remember I, that was one of those I was, I was listening to it while I was like washing dishes. I had an external speaker, and I was finishing up washing dishes, and I had like low light in the kitchen, and like the light was just a little low, and then the scene started, and I was like, oh, 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 <laughs> like it was... It was, it was it was a nice little moment, and then and then your girlfriend walks in and is like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> like, nothing, nothing. I'm not I'm not listening to audiobooks. Oh, no, and Sabe man. can get it, man. Sabe, run me over with a truck. Go ahead, I'll I'll, I'll thank you for it. <laughs> My God, Whew. Oh, and the potential outcome of what happens in that scene, um, having babies. Page two seventy two. Padme <laughs> says she can't imagine having twins. Oh, another heartbreaking Seems terrible. moment. Terrible. You Seems can, terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> you can imagine it, and it happens. Yep. Um, all right, page 293. When discussing how to save the planet of Bromlark, uh, moisture farms are brought up as a potential solution. I thought that mm-hmm. was fantastic. Um, page 309. Padme is speaking about the people of Malastare, and she says they want political power. Their senator was not elected chancellor when Valorum was unseated, and they've been backsliding ever since. And that is, of course, backed up by the Phantom Menace when Panaka announces that Palpatine was nominated for chancellor. He also says that Bail and Tilly's of Alderaan and Anli team of Malastare were also nominated. So it's just one of those throwaway comments from the Phantom Menace that we see expounded upon in this book. So another fantastic. You can imagine callback. how many times she must have watched the Phantom Menace to a research thousand. this book. So not many. enough. The, the the real answer is not That's enough true. time. She didn't even have Disney Plus yet. It was You're just the Blu-ray. Right. <laughs> the pre-Disney Plus life. It was a sad time. It was. 
Page 323, we're almost through. Padme leaned back in her chair while the Nava computer did its work. She liked this part of traveling, the breath before the plunge into the full deepness of space. It reminded her how big the galaxy was and how lucky she was to live in it. And I thought that was a little wink from E.K. Johnston, kind of saying that we're all lucky to escape into this galaxy far, far away. In that, oh, in that moment I that we all that. have as fans, where you, you do hold your breath when you know you're about to make that jump into hyperspace. Yeah, there was that. There was something we mentioned on our last podcast. Now that I remember, that I haven't quite mentioned yet, and I just wanted to say it real quick. Yeah, this book to me is the most calm and relaxed I've ever felt reading a Star Wars book, and I think just because of the content, the writing. The, I mean, not not to say there aren't high stakes to it. It's not, not. It's not unexciting, but my mind feels so at ease reading this book. And it's kind of like slipping into a warm bath as you read it because I do feel like I'm entering another kind of realm of existence as you read because you're getting to be enter this world that is filled with so much beauty, like especially the scenes on Naboo and Alderaan, you know? And it it's really kind of what you need, especially if you're going through like an anxious time in your life. This book is so good for transporting you through that hyperspace into a calming area. And uh, just a quick shout out for those powers that it has. Yeah. I love that. I mean, we, we read a lot of these books to escape and this is certainly a great one for that. Um, all right. Last one I have to bring up here. Page 332. Mon Mothma is speaking to Padme and she says, you might consider adding an official representative to your delegation in the Senate. And Padme responds, I'll think about it. Actually, I have just the being in mind. And we know she's talking about Jar Jar. How nice was it to have just a quick little shout out to Jar Jar, some Jar Jar love in a prequel novel? It's got to be wonderful, wonderful. It's got to be our there. Jar Jar I, representation. More Jar Jar, more Ahmed Best. I'm down for it. But that does it. Those are the Easter eggs and and the fun facts that I caught this second time through. And so I think we have to wrap up here, Eric. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to drop on me? And after you give those, why don't you re-rate the book on a 1 to 10? Sure. Um, I mean, we've been through so much of it, and there's still – I mean, there's there's really so much in this book. It is a – it's a lovely – it's dense while not being dense. You know, mm-hmm. it, it is full, I guess. That's my thing. It's a full book. I really like all these characters. And I was very happy, again, without giving anything away to go back to some of these characters in Queen's Peril. I'm, I really love this direction we're going in with getting more Padme content. I mean, every new thing we get about her, I love her more and more. And I think even just talking about this book again, I'm like, I'm, I'm probably going to reread this book again someday, you know, which I think yeah. is the highest praise you can give it, along with, as we've said, making us want to watch The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. So... It's a must-read for any Padme fan. I love um, it. And to re-rate, as we remember, I gave this book an 8.5 on my initial ranking, I believe. You know what? Based on my excitement, for, I'm going to bump it up to a 9. I wow. am. I, I think just the the only reason, the only knocks I give it is that I don't um, I don't love all the stuff with the final, uh, the Bromlark stuff. Like, it, it's good. But I, I'm reading it for the Padme characterization and the handmaiden stuff, which is it, it the reason we focused on it so much. Um, sure. But whenever I think of this book, I get happy. Whenever I think about the continuation of the story, I get excited. 
And for that reason, I'm going to bump it up to a 9. I think I really, really enjoyed it. So glad we did this reread. Charles, what about you? I am too. Just to give my final thoughts quickly, I just I want to reflect on the fact that I did not enjoy this book the first time I read it. And I think that I fell into the trap that the Handmaidens set on everyone else in the galaxy. I saw this book and I thought I saw it for what it was and I didn't. There's so much more within the covers of this book than I gave it credit for. And when I really took a minute and looked deeper, I found all of those things. And I think there is a lot more here than I realized the first time around. And I think it's probably the case for a lot of people that read this book. So I would encourage everyone out there who may have written this book off because it's about Padme or because it's a young adult novel or whatever the case may be. Don't fall into that trap. Give this book a try. Really give it an honest shot. Give it your attention. And I think that it will really live up to the expectations that you probably have for it. Um, So, you know, I gave this a 7.6 the first time around. And that's funny that I gave it a (laughs) 7.6. But I I can't deal with these decimals anymore. I'm going to bump it up to an 8. This is a much better book than I gave it credit for. And I'm really excited to to get to Queen's Peril and everything else that we get down the line from both E.K. Johnson and from the character of Padme. So with all of that being said, I think that's a wrap on part two of the Queen's Shadow Roundtable. The curse of Queen's Shadow has officially been broken, and I just want to say thank you to all of our patrons who helped to make that happen. No question and speaking of those patrons and speaking of ek johnston um cory and i mentioned this on our latest bounty hunt episode but i wanted to clue our patrons in and you charles in on some upcoming content from the living force yeah we ran a poll recently with our patrons to ask what do you want our next patron goal to be and we gave a couple different options and our top vote getters were number one a lost stars roundtable love it um by Claudia Gray. And number two was Ahsoka by E.K. Johnston Roundtable. So, whether those will be dependent on patron numbers, whether those will be just later in the year, we will announce. But I can definitely say we loved coming back to this book. We loved going back to an earlier novel in a roundtable format. And this was definitely a test to see if we could do it. And I think it passed our our... Our, our, our levels of uh, enjoyment, if nothing else. So we will definitely be going back to bring you more roundtables on at least canon novels that we haven't done so far, and I couldn't be more excited. But my friends, with that, truly, truly thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Living Force. Again, if you're new to this show, please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and tune in each week where we're going to be talking some Star Wars If you want to buy this book or you want to pre-order Queen's Pearl or do anything else, you want to support us, go to utini.com, click the Amazon link on the book profile, and we'll get a few cents to help keep our lights on. If you'd like to help support us directly, you can find us on patreon.com slash utini or on TeePublic, where you can get a number of shirts, including our handmaiden shirt, We Are Brave, that I am wearing actually at this exact moment. A special thank you, as always, to Adam Dyson and Patrick Ortiz on our Jedi High Council and Timothy Dunlap on our Alliance High Command for their amazing support. You can find us on Twitter individually. I am at Eric Eilerson. Charles is at C. Hankel. Corey is at Duck Star Wars MD. 
A special thank you, as always, to Matt Davenport, our amazing editor, Freddie, our producer, and Wes, our community manager. Thank you to Charles for podcasting with me. And remember, my friends, we are brave. There is no hatred. There is joy. There is no division. There is union. There is no apathy. There is passion. There is no gatekeeping. There is community. This is the Utini Star Wars fan code. Embrace it. Live by it. And above all, trust in the living force. That's all for this week. Join our community and surround yourself with like-minded fans by visiting us online at utini.com. Until next time, may the force be with you.